Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST-175, the Black Flag Louis Louis 7-inch. We've had these tracks on before. Brent will tell us how many episodes ago shortly, I'm sure, uh, when we had these on last time. Um, but this time, we've got a special guest for us as we go through these tracks again. Yeah, we've got Edward Culver on the show. So cool to have Edward on. Not only did he take uh, the cover photo for this, we'll hear more about uh, this release from him as well, but he's taken hundreds of photos that have appeared on lots of releases that we know and love. His imagery is just iconic. Couldn't be happier to have him on. Yeah. Brent, why don't you hit me with some spiels? All right. This week, Ryan, I'm giving you my last 10. (laughs) (laughs) Not my top 10. My last 10. Not Excellent. Okay. Excellent. It's a good it's a good segment, right? Mm-hmm. Aha. Uh-huh. I need that positive reinforcement. Yeah. Bring it. Okay. Uh, we're gonna start going into the comp zone continuum. This is this is like bands that I heard on comps that we've talked about that I followed up on. Where are we going? To the comp zone continuum. To the comp zone continuum. Excellent. Okay. Please continue. Okay. Gnome. We, yes. 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 We heard their track Crush on the CZ comp four on the floor, not three on the tree. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It grabbed me, so I tracked down their debut from 1992, also on CZ, Six High Surprise Tower. Couldn't really find much about Gnome. They were originally signed to Sub Pop, uh, supposedly, but the label was cash-strapped at this time, and their releases Mm -hmm. were delayed. Pre-Nevermind. Mm, this is early 90s, so maybe. Pre-Nirvana sale to Geffen, maybe. Yes, maybe. That'd be a good podcast to do. What? What's that? Let's do, after we do Alternative Tentacles and Homestead, then maybe let's do Sub Pop. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's, you know, the beautiful thing about those labels is like, there's not that many duds. That would rule. I feel like Sub Pop would be impossible to do, to find. Why? Because I... Th- feel like the cassettes i just feel like they're it's not like sst where it's all laid out as far as like release numbers yeah you'd have to piece a few things together certainly from the early comp tapes and the singles clubs and all the promo that they put out it would be tricky i agree yeah so anyways sub pop was cash strapped so gnome uh went with cz for this release fuzzy pop maybe almost like fluff or like Hmm. the posies uh there's two follow-up records looks like they disbanded mid-90s considering they came out of seattle in the early 90s you'd think their name would be you know thrown around a bit more yeah i checked out the members on discogs and at least on there nothing was really standing out as far as notable bands like prior or since gnome yeah okay number two ryan scram stand up 1987 BYO, they're on the comp Another Shot for Bracken, which I almost didn't check them out uh, for a couple reasons. Discogs describes them as ska, and I don't like ska. And their track on that comp is a cover of John Lennon's Imagine, which didn't really do it for me. Two strikes against them for sure. Wasn't that comp on Positive Force, or was it a co-release with BYO and Positive Force? I think it was a co-release. Okay. Uh... But I'm really glad I, I did check them out because I love this. I'd put them more in 
like the roots reggae category category than ska little bit of clash little bit of op ivy great personal politics lyrics that you associate with byo mm. philly band there's there's a second record i'll be tracking it down i really like this one it's good interesting yeah okay and then from the tantrum comp 1990 yes Yes. That had a great Spider Baby track on it, and you urged me to go deeper into Spider Baby, so I tracked down their debut EP from 1988 on Deco Records. Looks like a very short-lived label, only a half a dozen releases. This is really cool straight-ahead rock. Reminds me of the Heartbreakers, like Johnny Thunders a little bit. Yep. Uh, A little bit gothy. It almost reminded me of Change Today era TSOL a little bit. It's good. Drummer Max... Eidson did a stint in Lords of Altamont, but other than that, uh, couldn't find a bunch of, uh, hardly any info about them. Uh, their P.O. box on the record is in Hollywood, so I'm assuming they were an L.A. band. L.A. band, yeah. You should check out the full length to My Mind's on Fire. That's good. Okay. I certainly will, because this one's They've good. got a single on Sympathy, too. Turn Turn On Me mm. on Sympathy, a great, you know, when Sympathy was just cranking them out. This is a good one. Okay. Ryan, I have a Dr. Dream update for you. Nice. Or Dr. Dream adjacent, I guess. Don't mean maybe. Main man Mark Andrea hooked me up with their 1996 album, Wait, which came out on Totophile Records. I couldn't find any info on it at all. There's nothing on Discogs. There is a Totophile page on Discogs. It's listed as a San Francisco label, but this release isn't even listed. Totophile did put out a Merman album, though, Ryan. Ah, yeah. cool. This record's, it's really good. Same general sound as the other two. Maybe a little more straightforward and rockin', maybe. What's it called? Wait. Was it ever officially released, though? Yeah, it was by this Totophile Records. No way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it might be my favorite of the Don't Mean Maybe albums. Okay, Ryan, number five, Bought a Trees. The album is Katie, 1987, Samsara Records. This is the band Thomas Tree was the vocalist in prior to Christy McCool, who have that killer record on Dr. Dream. Dr. Dream. Yeah, lovelier than the Queen of England. Uh, This is really good. It sounds like a cross between, like, This Is What You Want era Pill and that band Passionelle that we've talked about a little bit. Right, okay. Yeah. His vocals aren't nearly as unhinged as they are in Christy McCool, but there's shades of it. Uh, he sounds a lot like Leiden at times. It's cool. Right on. Number six, Nonagon is a recommend by you. Yes. They Birds is the record, 2021. Yep, that's their latest. I think it's their only full length. Mm-hmm. Controlled Burn Records, Chicago band. I can see why you like why you like this. Very Jawbox. I actually zoned out a few times and forgot what I was listening to and thought maybe it was Jawbox, which is not a critique, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't sound like a huge compliment. Hmm. Did you like it? Yeah, I did. I liked it a lot. Good recommend. It's good. All all their releases are good. Nonagon, rule. Uh, Number seven. So I had posted an image of a poster the week of our Fred Frith episode for a gig with his group Skeleton Crew, and on the bill, I'm going to butcher this, is a French band called Etron Faux Le Lobon, and we got some positive comments on the post about that band, so I I 
Googled them, and it, what I read intrigued me. So I tracked down this comp from 1991 called 43 Songs. It's a three-disc set. It looks like it's got, it's like all five of their albums on three discs, two of which were produced by Fred Frith. It's super challenging stuff, so I haven't really dove into it as much as I plan to. Uh, so I can't really spiel about them too hard, but it's wild. French avant-garde rock. It blends punk, jazz, prog, and all points in between. Uh, they were active 73 to 85. Definite beat, beef heart influence. There's lots to explore there. Hmm. Cool. And it's a triple disc set? Yep. Whoa. Okay, number eight. Maybe you know this one, Ryan, because they're on Homestead, or at least this record is. Fish and Roses, 1989. Oh, yeah. We Are Happy to Serve You. Pretty cool band. I actually saw them on a poster for a Bebop Records show, and so I checked them out. From New York, no guitarist. Uh, all the members have roots in like the no-wave scene. It's just keys, bass, and drums. Super avant-garde, again, very Beefheart-esque at times. Uh, the bass and drums lock in in a, in a really cool way while the, while the keys are doing interesting stuff kind of on top of it. There was a second record in 1990, so I'll, I'll be track, tracking that down too. Which one did you do? We Are Happy to Serve You? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good. There's um, oh, there's at least one single or 12-inch before that, a 12-inch with like the Pink Panther on it that you should check out too. Okay. Number nine, Ryan, this is a recommend for you that we got from a listener, I got, on our behalf from a listener, and I apologize, I probably spent two hours trying to find the correspondence. Like, people hit us up in so many ways, email, on Instagram, they comment on posts, They, some people have my cell number and text me. Uh, it's crazy. And... Uh, <laughs> I tried and tried and I could not find it. I think whoever, so so I apologize to whoever uh, sent it to me because I'm not giving you credit right now, but I will if you tell me, <laughs> if you hear this and tell me it was you. But thank you to whoever it was. I And I seem to recall this was had something to do with Steve Fisk, but I could be wrong about that. I couldn't find any connection to Steve Fisk, but that's what I remember. Anyways, the band is called Sad Happy, one word, or it's spelt as one word, sad, happy. Uh, there is a Bandcamp page. This record is on there. It's called Before We Were Dead Live. Uh, it came out in 1993. Another band with no guitarist. It's drums, bass, and sax, sometimes two bassists. Um, it's really good. It's um, They're based out of Seattle. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they remind me of this killer band called Zoo, Z-U. There's four studio albums and then this live one they have a couple early like cassette only eps that are also up on the band camp those are pretty neat um they're just bass and drums it's a bit like dose but with drums but this this live record is just super awesome it's and a, what's the name of the set is it just live i think it's the record yeah yeah it's, the name it's called before we were dead Live. Live. Okay, gotcha. It's a total skronk fest, man. On it? Yeah, you'll like that. And then number 10, Ryan, in my last 10, speaking of <laughs> sub pop, we're heading into the comp zone. Smells like smoked sausages. 
Double single, split release with Amrep. I knew you'd know that. Love it. Yep. Part of the Singles Club, actually, 1992. Yep. Tar with a killer track, Deep Throw. We've got Cows doing a Lead Belly song, My Girl, which I know and probably most people know more commonly as In the Pines. Yeah. Vertigo, Noise Rock from Minneapolis. Pretty sure we've talked about them before. They were an Amrep band primarily, but their song Dynamite Cigar is on this comp. Helios Creed has a typically weird jam on here called Hideous Greed. Helmet covering the Melvins. Oven. Oh, yeah. Yep. Keep it coming. I'm, yep. I'm putting this one on as soon as we're done recording. Yeah. Uh, surgery. Oh, keep yep. it coming. New York Noise Rockers. Boss Hog doing a swampy blues version of Fire of Love. And then the God Bullies bring down the house. Man, oh, man. Good stuff. That's my last 10, Ryan. Excellent. That is an untouchable comp single, man. Yeah, double it's, double it's seven inch. Untouchable. Whoa. That helmet version of that Melvin song just made me want to listen to the Melvins. And helmet. Mm-hmm. Listen, to bo- listen to both of them. Yeah, you don't have to pick one. You can listen to both. Yeah, if you know what's good for you. Um, all right, so I've got two spiels. One is a quick shout out to you. I don't know if you remember, but uh, way back when, way, way back when, you actually hipped me to this band. It, I don't know if it was a, it was like a, I don't know if it was a formal recommend, but you definitely mentioned them on a show. It was a band, Tripod Jimmy. Yeah, and you, you've thanked me already for hipping you to Tripod Jimmy. I'm thanking you again, and here's why. Okay, so not only did I like uh, both of their records, "Long Walk Off a Short Pier," and "A Warning to All Strangers" from '82 and '85, there's also a comp CD. So we're back in the comp zone, 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 zone. Because <laughs> they, ha- so Tripod Jimmy has this comp called unclaimed freight with a bunch of unreleased tunes and whatnot so i've been trying to find it and it is impossible but here's here's my cool story i i found a website talking about tripod jimmy and it linked to this website lenny line and i got so and this comp it was cd only released in 1995 Okay, mm-hmm. and you cannot find it anywhere. But through the Tripod Jimmy Lenny Line website, I got hooked up with Lenny Bove, Tripod Jimmy's bass player. Nice. And Lenny Lenny Bove sent me a copy of this disc for twelve bucks. It arrived like four days later in the COVID mail. Awesome story. Love the disc. Thanks again for the recommend. I also want to tell you about two other bands that I recently discovered that I'm digging real hard and I think you should check out as well. All right. And so should our Mojack squad. Okay. Okay. Check it. So recently the great legendary Chicago band 11th Dream, they put out a new album called Since Grazed. It's a surprise double LP. It's their 14th LP. It's coming out on Comedy Minus One Records. And I've mentioned that label before. This is the great New Jersey label that has bands like Bottomless Pit, did those wicked Silkworm re-releases, has the probably, if not my favorite, one of my favorite Carl Hendricks 
records um, came out on Comedy Minus One called The Adult Section. Um, those Wicked Mint Mile records uh, with Tim from Bottomless Pit and Silkworm. Savick, The Go to Beds, Comedy Minus One, great label. So when I'm ordering this new 11th Dream Day record, I'm, I'm looking, I'm checking out other bands and stuff on there because, you know, what if, right? What if I, what if I find another band that I want to get in on a shipping combo from uh, the U.S. because it's insanity in terms of shipping prices these days? So Comedy Minus One also does distro. So I found two other bands that I ordered while ordering the 11th Dream Day record that I'm totally into, you should be too. And the first one is called Minutes. Do you know Minutes, Brant? No. So they're a band from Kalamazoo. Great indie rock post-punk that sounds like a perfect later era Discord band mm. or a Comedy Minus One band. Uh, Ryan Nelson from the band was actually in a Discord band called Beauty Pill, or at least they put out a couple of releases on Discord. But check out Minutes. They've got a few records out. I snagged the one called Roland on Michigan Independence Network from 2012. Can't wait until that one arrives in the mail. But my favorite discovery. And I also struck up a Lenny Bove from Tripod Jimmy-esque relationship with the bass player from this band. And they are called The Gary. The Gary from Austin, Texas. I ordered their new Fallow EP on Act Your Age Records from 2021. The Gary have a great Silkworm, Bottomless Pit, Mission of Burma, Shellac, Touch and Go vibes. Um, it's like Chicago by way of Texas, by way of Texas, by way of Chicago sound. I just love it. They actually remind me at times brand of a great local band from where you and I are from, a band called the Moose Jaw Metropolitan Symphony Orchestra, or Moose Jaw SK. Huh. Sound a lot like Moose Jaw SK, including the vocals. I'm just really, really digging their records. So I tracked down some of their other releases, but I couldn't find a copy of their Logan and Chubb CDs. So I contacted them via Bandcamp, and, and they were sold out on Bandcamp. But Dave, their bass player, responded. We cut a deal. It was another COVID miracle. I got my uh, my Gary holes fixed. Check out the band, the Gary. I'm just loving them, and you should too. So that's all I got, man. Okay. Awesome. We got to go to Louie Louie? Yeah, we got to go now. History lesson, part one. All right, Brent. So when did we have these tracks on last? I'm thinking it was the first four years, but tell me when it was. Yeah, they're for sure on the first four years. Uh, I've actually have this in my spiel when we talk about the tracks, but I do have a little timeline here for you, Ryan, just to bring everybody up to speed. It's been a while since we've had Black Flag on, hey? Yeah. So this is like the Gin, Dez, Chuck, Robo version of the band. So March 1980... Ron Reyes quits the band at the Fleetwood mid-show. Uh, the, the band supposedly played Louie Louie after he quit that night uh, for an hour while various audience members jumped on stage and sang. So they were definitely doing this song pre-Dez. Summer of 80, 
uh, Ron comes back long enough to do the vocals for the Jealous Again EP, which was released in August of that year. Des joins sometime around June 1980. So by the time Des was in the band, Jealous Again came out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is kind of weird. Uh, they start touring like crazy with Des. Spring 81, they re- they record the six-pack EP at Media Art, which was released in June of 81. Wikipedia says that this single, the Posh Boy single, is the first release with Des on vocals. It's listed as coming out in 81, so I'm assuming, if that's correct, it must have come out like in the first few months of 81, because uh, Six Pack came out uh, June of 81. They're recording at Media Art with Spot in early 81 again for the first full-length album. Uh, And of course, after that, Rollins joins, Dezo switches to guitar, and the rest is history. Here's a little spiel that's on the back of the uh, Everything Went Black LP from Spot. Because both of these songs are also on here in different versions. Different versions, yep. Yep. Spot says, arriving back in L.A., we embarked upon our first 24-track recording session. All previous recordings were 16-track, which became known as the Aborted Police Story Project. From this came the Louie Louie Damaged One single. This was also the final session done at Media Art, which, was, which lost its lease and ceased operation in spring of 81. And where I had been living throughout all this madness... The vocal on the version of Louie Louie contained herein was the very last track I recorded at the studio. So, obviously, they did multiple takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next day was when the control board and the machines were disconnected and carried out the door. So, as I mentioned, Ryan, this was released by Posh Boy as Posh Boy 13 uh, as both a small and then a large whole single, so possibly repressed, I'm guessing. When reissued by SST in 1987, it came in a number of different colors, black, red, turquoise, white. Uh, They released it as a mini CD. It came out in 1991 as a 10-inch on white vinyl, 2011 on gray vinyl, and it's still in print. I checked. It's available for six bucks in the SST Superstore. Wow. Here's a little spiel I got from Joe Carducci about this single. I think Greg and Chuck told me they had several reasons for doing the Louie Louie single and also the Future Looks Bright cassette on Posh Boy. I was talking to them as a distributor at Systematic when I'd call to reorder records or see them at their gigs in the San Francisco area. Black Flag were kicked out of Hermosa Beach, maybe in mid-1980, and moved to Torrance. They started touring east in late 1980, which meant trying to do business from the road for three weeks at a time. Then Torrance police raided SST after the band left for tour in spring 1981. I called SST and talked to Spot and Mike Watt while the raid was going on. So they had these troubles. And in L.A., Posh Boy Records, owned by Robbie Fields, was being boycotted by some of the L.A. and O.C. bands that he'd worked with, and Frontier and other labels were swiping bands from him. Greg and Chuck thought those bands didn't know enough to appreciate the distribution and PR that Robbie was doing on their records, 
so they liked that they could make a point of breaking that boycott effort. I recall it as part of Black Flag and SST's open sense of working the music and records out in the real world, rather than just to the righteous folks with the right haircut. True. Yeah, so thanks to Joe for sending that. So as you mentioned, Brent, this came out first on Posh Boy. I got a quick spiel on that. Oh, right on. So Posh Boy was a Hollywood, California label started by Robbie Fields in the late 70s. This is what it says on the Posh Boy website. It says, in 1978, Posh Boy began releasing independent recordings that have since become classics. Their catalog reads like a virtual who's who of the potent first-generation California hardcore and new wave scene. Social Distortion, TSOL, Black Flag, Adolescence, Agent Orange, Shattered Faith, Channel Free, Circle Jerks, and it's really a, uh, a contemporary with Frontier and BYO and SST at the time. It also released things like the self-titled Nuns record, the great uh, Agent Orange living in darkness, the uh, classic Adolescence Amoeba single, the Rodney on the Rock comps, the Beach Boulevard comp that you talked about a few weeks back, the Posh Hits comp, the Future Looks Bright cassette, which uh, Joe Carducci just mentioned, that co-release with SST that has the Descend Dance on it, the misspelled Descendants. Mm -hmm. Also some great releases by bands that I like, The Crowd, Chronic Disorder, Rick L. Rick, The Simple Tones, and Louie Louie by Black Flag. Wikipedia also says that Posh Boy continued releasing records into the 2000s, and that it subsequently transitioned to a digital-only label and to sublicense the audio rights to other labels. And that's why you'll see a lot of the Posh Boy records being re-released these days. Well, the more popular ones, anyways, um, by a label called Jurassic Plastic out of the U.S., and then also Radiation Records out of Italy. In fact... My, the copy of uh, the crowd record that I have is a is not an original Posh Boy. It's a re-release, and it sounds good. It's awesome. It's twenty bucks. I'm glad that you can still get that stuff. Yeah, for sure. I also um, speaking about all these contemporary labels with Posh Boy, like Frontier and BYO. I also was looking at a lot of the labels that Edward Culver took shots for uh, way back when. And I've got a bit of spiel on Edward as well, Brent. Oh, right on. So I mentioned right off the start of the episode that Edward is a real iconic punk rock photographer. Um, one of the most iconic punk rock photographers ever. He really helped document and define the look of the late 70s and 80s California punk scene. And you are familiar with his work. You just are, because you've seen it. It's everywhere. Um, Edward was originally from Pomona, California, basically a self-taught photographer. He was one of those ones at early punk shows who had a camera and started to learn how to take pictures right up against the stage. And he's been doing it for over 40 years. He's shot lots of covers for labels like Frontier, Posh Boy, but also labels with bands on them that are kind of, you know, peers with the SST label and bands of the day, like Mystic, Enigma, Triple X, 
epitaph, restless. You'll hear uh, about some of these examples in the interview as well, but he shot group sex by Circle Jerks, Damage by Black Flag, the awesome Danger Zone record by China White, the also awesome self-titled TSOL EP, the How Could Hell Be Any Worse in 8085 records by Bad Religion, albums by the Longriders and Lords of the New Church, the Cramps, the Chili Peppers, JFA, Jeff Dahl, DOA, Divine Horseman, DI, Channel 3, Angry Samoans, Adolescents, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, tons of Edwards' photos are also in the American Hardcore book and movie. Um, he's also the guy who shot some of those very iconic um, LAPD photos at the early punk rock shows. Um, there's also a book collecting Edwards' work out there called Blight at the End of the Funnel. And he didn't just take photos of punk bands. He also shot for the majors and in total shot over 500 album covers. So it's a, it's a pretty amazing career that he's had. Yeah, no kidding. Let's throw it over to Edward. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Edward Culver. Edward, thanks for being on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm wondering if you can take me back to uh, your early days when were when did you graduate high school? I actually dropped out as soon as I turned eighteen and went to junior college to study art. Ah, were you already taking photographs by that point? Oh no, no, I was drawing and painting and doing woodworking and ceramics and that kind of a lot of manual art stuff. I didn't start taking photos until the end, uh, like this, in the late nineteen seventy eight when I started taking photos and I started taking photos of uh, that you know punk bands and stuff and uh also in skid row i used to do lots of stuff after i'd go to shows i'd wander through skid row and take photos down there Hmm. so was your interest in photography uh, more from the art end of it well i always uh you know i was influenced by art you know i was never really per se familiar with a lot of famous photographers or anything or, or you know experimental interesting unusual stuff you know I, I knew man ray stuff and i've always liked that that was incredible photography stuff he did and, and i knew about ansel adams and you know but you know i'd never really associated photography so much with art you know other than being in the arts but it's like you know there is an art to it you know that's for sure were you self-taught? Primarily, yeah. I learned from my mistakes. It's like, oh, shit, I'm never going to do that again. You know, <laughs> I learned a lot from my mistakes. Right. Growing up, I actually learned a lot from my brother's mistakes. I watched my older brother growing up and doing drugs and stuff, and I was just like, oh, no, I don't think so. I want nothing to do with this crap. So when you first started photographing bands, were you... Like, obviously, you were a part of the punk scene yourself. You were a fan. Oh, yeah, immediately when I started seeing that stuff, I was just like, this is amazing. These fans are just cool as fuck, and they were doing some really interesting stuff. You know, I I used to go to shows in the 60s. Like, I saw The Mothers in 66. I saw Love and The Seeds and Blue Cheer and The Kinks at the Whiskey and T-Rex at the Whiskey and all kinds of shows. Wow. saw Captain Beefheart when Trout Mask Replica was released. 
Wow. And then in the 70s, like kind of corporate rock crap kind of took over, and I wasn't going out at all. You know, there was the Stooges and, you know, the MC5 and some of those bands that were still around. But, like, as far as concerts were going, it was like, man, I don't give a shit. You know, I'm not going to fucking arena rock crap. <clears throat> you know, this was a whole other thing from that era, and I was kind of older than most of the punks, and I started, uh, I took my camera to the first shows I was going to, started taking pictures I uh, just had this junk 35 and I was shooting available light and most of it was crap there's a few that came out good you know in the first year I learned a lot and improved a whole lot real quick you know by learning from my mistakes and looking at what I was doing and I was like oh that didn't work okay when did you first start doing like promo type fo- photos and as opposed to just shooting uh live stuff. oh i was i was doing those all along you know i was i did black flags and tsol and you know dead kennedy's promo photos they were using my photos on eight by cans back in the day did you have a preference oh no i did all kinds of photos i wasn't just shooting live stuff i was doing group photos and conceptual photos and all kinds of stuff you know like the whole black flag album the damage album that i did is on you know they had the idea of Henry hitting the mirror, and I came up how to make it work. It wasn't a spontaneous photograph. You would not have blood showing immediately. Yeah, yeah it's true, yeah. Well, let's um, talk about that for a minute. So that, the concept was theirs, the basic concept. Of having him hitting the mirror, and I came up with how to make it work. Yeah. Might I interject how absolutely horrified and embarrassed I am by all the disgustingly bad reissue covers of black flag damage that it yeah. just it's got my name on it it's like excuse me these look like fucking shit folks and i even saw a nickelback damage meme that had used a good black and white outtake from my damage and it was beautiful and it's like why doesn't damage look like this it's just it's obscene you know that's a milestone album yeah what is it about the the later reissues is it like the color the colors that they, well, they use they or? did a washed out color one that they messed around with played with and it's all washed out weird looking it looks like levi material or something and then they did these horrible washed out black and white ones and it's like you never talk to me you might you know, ask me supposedly the transparency of the damage cover was stolen from the sst office and stuff and but they never contacted me about doing anything or using something mm. different or something there should be a whole anniversary box set of that with a bunch of other photos that i shot absolutely what about other early black flag shows i know you shot them very early on at the cuckoo's nest i believe oh i shot the first show with henry at the cuckoo's nest yeah but i shot them before that when des was singing not when keith or chavo was but i have photos from like 79 or 80 of uh you know, black flag playing. Mm-hmm. I recently saw a photo of Henry. I think it was on the back of a flatbed truck somewhere. Uh huh. With mid-80s. a cast on his wrist. Yeah. Yeah. What was that show? It was. Uh, they had a generator and stuff. They did a show. It was right downtown L.A. by close to a place that was called Al's Bar. That well, was nineteen eighty-five. Kira looks all rowdy in that picture. She's got a fist up in the air. That's pretty funny. I have thousands of on-scene punk photos, and they're not seconds. You know, it's just stuff I never, ever dealt with for all these years, and I'm 
scanning all of it. People are going to croak. They think I did a lot of punk work. It's like, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. You know? Like, are you talking about just running mm-hmm. the gamut of L.A. bands? Yeah, like, you know, I just posted, like, uh, Manson Youth and uh, Disruptive Influence. It's like a lot of people don't know who they were, but the locals are all like, yeah, I know those guys and all, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Like, I've always kind of joked that I've got... Uh, pictures of the rim desk you know like nobody's heard of them but you know i photographed them and uh, i was uh danny spire from wasted you still a good friend of mine and this friend of his his nickname is jerry lewis spelled with a g-e-r-i but they called me up and i was telling yeah i'm scanning stuff and i said i even have pictures of the rim desk and and uh jerry goes oh i know those guys they used to hang out here in venice with the suicidal guys and i was like what you know them and it's like i didn't remember anything about them I got some killer live photos and some decent band photos of them. I paid attention to all the little bands besides the big stars. You know, I'm known for the other ones, but I, you know, I documented the fuck out of that stuff. Like everybody that I could get together and stuff. There's one guy, my friend Joe Gutierrez, but I met him again years later. I photographed him when he was 15 and 16 in The Plague, uh, Disruptive Influence, and Skinhead Army. And he was three different bands over the course of two years that I photographed him in when he was 15 and 16. Wow. Yeah, one of my favorite semi-obscure bands that you photographed is Dead Hippie. Oh, yeah. I've got a ton of photos of them. You ever seen the one where he's laying on a tombstone reaching up at me? No. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I did close-ups of his patchwork Levi pants with all of the stickers and shit on it and stuff. And... uh, (laughs) I have him climbing on a cross with his big wool vest and stuff, like climbing across the cross, like reaching out at me and stuff. We did those in the Hollywood Cemetery. And then I photographed band photos of dead hippie in the Bronx caves up in the Hollywood Hills. So presumably you're scanning all this for, you know, possibly a follow-up to, to Blight at the, at the end of the tunnel? Or end of the funnel, sorry? Uh, well, like, that was a... 25-year overview, and my concept initially and the layout was much better than what came out, but originally I had planned on doing a punk volume with a lot more stuff in it, uh, celebrity quote-unquote uh, portraiture stuff like Warhol and Leary and Ice Cube and stuff like that, and then street photography, and then my social political assembly sculpture made out of antique objects, and I wanted to do four volumes, and I had titles for them all. And... Uh, then it got immediately reduced to one volume, and I was just like, I was pissed. <laughs> the lady says, we got to come up with a new title. And I said, we could call it a smattering of my shit. I was just bummed because it was getting really limited. And I held out a whole bunch of good punk pictures that um, I didn't use in there at all. You know, it's just like, ah, fuck it, I'm not throwing everything in one thing. I'm not coming out with a volume two but you know i've got so much more stuff to back it up it's kind of crazy it's like i could have put it all in there and still not worried about it but i want to use a lot of that stuff out of the uh, blight punk section in the next one i want to use all that stuff and way 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 more do you remember the first band you photographed yeah it was the motels actually ah. this wasn't really a punk band mm-hmm Okay. I'm still friends with the guitar player. They were a pretty interesting band early. Their first record's really kind of cool. This uh, Black Flag Louie Louie cover with uh, yeah. Dez lighting a cigarette, do you remember that photo shoot? 
Yeah, it was in an alley behind Duke's by the Tropicana Motel where all the rock and rollers used to hang out. And uh, it was in the alleyway. We were running around. We did a whole bunch of pictures that night. Some of the films kind of fucked up. I posted one or two of them up on the uh, on my Instagram page. Like when you went out to take those pictures, did you know that they were going to be used for album art, or was it just a, a photo oh, shoot? Oh yeah, yeah, I was shooting those for the cover of the Louis Louis. There by the end of nineteen eighty three, I had done pictures on eighty LA punk records. Wow, <laughs> it was nuts. And and then the yeah. Bill from Toxic Shock in nineteen eighty three put out a single uh, EP with some bands like Muslim Birth and Manson Youth called Noise from Nowhere. And on the back of the package, in big letters, it says "Surprise, no photos by Ed Culver." <laughs> he thought I'd be pissed off. I'm still laughing about it. <laughs> I'm not sure if you can recall it, but the back cover of the Posh Boy single, anyways, has a guy standing at the you know a shadowy figure at the end of an alley is that des no that's my sister's old kind of nerdy boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> the, and that, that that the wall behind him is the east wall of the hong kong cafe and the building on the left is the cafe bank it's right there in chinatown that's all gated off and cleaned up and everything now but i had grant just go stand down there I love how painterly that photograph looks. Posh Boy used that photo on the cover of a nun single also. I never heard about it, never got paid for that. Yeah, the Channel 3 album cover, the Backward Gun, the Beer Life album cover I did, yep. that, that was a photograph that I set up and did. It was a self-portrait that I did of myself by myself using my camera on a tripod and a timer and measuring the distance with the yardstick and stuff after I focused the camera and I measured it and then I carried it out in the driveway to get a black background and measured out and stood there and kind of tripped the thing and I only did two pictures but one of them came out and uh, that was supposed to be a liner sleeve photograph and if you know Blight there's that spray paint can mm -hmm. that was also for the liner sleeve of Black Flag's damage and it didn't get used. Some other you know, fairly famous or favorites of, of mine anyways, photo shoots and, and album covers. I love that 45 Grave Sleep and Safety cover and the oh, School's you. Out single. What is that giant spider on the School's Out single? Uh, it's a place, uh, like, I don't even know if there was a structure. It was up on the kind of east side of the Hollywood Hills to the west of the Hollywood Bowl, like across the Coanga Pass from the uh, Hollywood sign. I wish they'd take that damn thing down. <laughs> it was the abandoned place and it was called spider pool you can actually google it and i guess that, that they used to have parties there and it was a that was a tiled wall that was by a swimming pool that wasn't there any longer and there's a big brass fly and set into the concrete there's that big black tile spider and the spider web and stuff but there's actually a big brass fly that's inset in there it was really cool oh. and i heard that they had these parties and the guy would give these women paper babies to, to make go swimming and get naked all of a sudden <laughs> weird yeah the photos of the gun club at the first baptist church those are pretty iconic oh thank you yeah, yeah i'm still good friends with jeffrey's mother and sister oh really cool people yeah mm. The cover of Bad Religion, How Could Hell Be Any Worse? Now, it, was that just a photo that they saw of yours that they liked, or was... No, I was photographing them. I did those pictures where they're up on the hillside with a big cross, which was up near the Hollywood sign, and we were shooting pictures up there. And then down below on Coanga, there was that abandoned car where I photographed them 
breaking the windows with a brick and a rock or something. Mm. And I did photos where two guys are doing handstands with their feet on the ceiling and two guys are standing with, on the floor with their hands on the ceiling and the tunnels underneath of the Hollywood Bowl under going underneath the Highland. I've never done anything with those, but they're pretty funny. Like two guys are upside down, but they look like <laughs> the other guys. <laughs> I think I think I shot that picture while we were just up there on the hill. It was kind of dusk, and it was smoggy Hollywood and stuff. And then they, I think they liked it, if I recall right. And they used it for the cover, and I shot the pictures on there. And I also told them to use the Gustave Doré engraving from Dante's Inferno on the back. And they did that, and I told them to credit him, too, which they did. Hmm. And the Bad Religion 80 to 85... Do you recall what oh, show that photo was taken at? Uh, it wasn't at a show. It was after a show at the Starwood in probably late 1979, maybe very early 1980 at Okie Dogs on Santa Monica Boulevard, yeah. which was just mm-hmm. a stone throw from the Starwood. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with bad religion, and that's like the worst deal I've ever made. Yeah, They branded my photo without uh, giving me credit in that package even. All the photos were contact strips of my photos including the boots on the cover which is actually my friend's boot from modern industry uh reed campbell in the middle is linda curd and on the right is uh monty harrison they were san gabriel valley punks that i knew when i photographed them at okie dogs and then bad religion used it and it's like it's not bad religion they never dress like that you know right mm-hmm uh, yeah, and uh, no credit in that package. They were doing shirts. It doesn't have my name. I don't. I don't care if people make shirts out of my stuff. In a sense, it's like even just an album cover. But it's like, hey, that's an icon you're using forty years later. Stick my name under there. Give me credit. Like TSOL. You know, it's like I love Jack and we're good friends. But it's like they make all these clothes out of that EP cover. And it's like, put my name on there. You're still using it. Give me some credit. I made that thing. You know, I made that fair. art. That's fair. That's fair. I'm sure you've told this story a million times before, but can you tell me the story about shooting the Group Sex album cover? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's all kinds of different rumors about how that came about. And there's people say that, oh, we just got everybody down in the punch bowl and had answers and pictures. And it's like, you know what? I had color film with me. I was there to shoot the album cover, and I had color film. It was actually color rendered into a high contrast stat print and then colorized. Diane Finn Cabbage basically saved it. It wasn't the greatest photo. It wasn't real sharp. You know, it's like I was standing on top of a ladder next to the pool and shooting pictures with, you know, punk skating around me and drunk kids all over the place. It was like, whoa. And it wasn't the best photo. I liked the cover. It came out really good. Mm-hmm. I did the Wild in the Streets cover too, and I don't like that one at all. They crashed a parade and were in a hurry. They were scared they were going to get busted and were marching real fast. And I had to run ahead and slide to a stop and then turn around and try to take a picture or two and then run ahead and stop. And, you know, they were out in the middle of the street for maybe about a minute. And you can't even really tell they were in a parade. And then the art director knocked the band members out in black and white so they looked dropped into this bad photo. You know, people like it, but it's like, no, that doesn't measure up. It's way down on the list of my favorites. Hmm. I guess it's like recording an album, maybe. I mean, we talk to a lot of artists who the vision they had in their head is was not put down on wax. They're disappointed. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Uh-huh. Somewhat the, sa- the same thing, maybe, for you. 
in some case some cases anyways. oh all the time i did the yeah. pictures i had this big giant weathered oak wooden cross mm-hmm. that was 14 feet tall and i put black velvet all down on my studio floor laid it down on the floor and then jack was wearing like a g-string or something and laying on it naked except for that g-string and i shot it from above the cross with the black velvet underneath of it so it looked like that aerial view of Salvador Dali's floating crucifixion. Okay. Okay. No computer wizardry even needed because I had black velvet on the floor. It was just looked like this floating cross from shot from above, which was just because it was point, you know, the top was towards me when I shot it. And this art director put a, I, I like the design, but it's like these thorns that go all around and they touched both sides of the cross so the cross doesn't float anymore. And it's like, holy mother of God. You know, it's like, what a concept. What a fucking concept. Let's ground this thing, you know? Yeah. You said that Wild in the Streets is way down on the list of your favorites. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? Oh, I have a bunch I'm really happy with, you know? I don't know. Group Sex is way up there, and that was the first cover I did, you know, to him and Mm-hmm. I don't know. The TSOL EP. Like, it yeah. stayed and held up, you know. I did a lot of them. <laughs> I've done over 500 album covers. I'm trying to get a discography of them onto my website, which would be nuts. It's already mm-hmm. getting kind of crazy, but it's nowhere near done. What do you think is your most well-known photo? Or... Oh, I'd say the Wasted Youth Flip Shot or the Damage cover, probably those two. And actually, well, what gets ripped off the most is my Roz Williams stuff. It drives me crazy. They just, it's everywhere with no credit all the time. I go on hashtag search and ask people to credit me and stuff. And there's one dirtbag. I was like, I, I, I actually I write, uh, uh, please credit my Roz Williams photograph. Thank you. You know, mm-hmm. and this guy comes back. They're on the internet for anybody to use. And I was like, Oh, and it's like, you love this guy, you you love this iconic photograph that I shot, and where were you at the time, fuckhead? And he just blows me off, and it's like, you wouldn't have it if it wasn't for me, and you can't spend a half a minute putting my credit on the photo that you're using of mine. It's just like, what a clown. Just like, good God. You know, it's like, yeah. would you post a song without mentioning the band? Yeah. I said that before, like when I used to be on Facebook, I'd say, would you post a, you know, a, a song without the band's name? Well, what's the difference? These are people primarily just sharing the photos? Or are yeah, you talking uh-huh. about commercial usage as well? No, oh, they, yeah, they, there's always bootlegs of my Ross Williams shit. I'm shutting them down left and right all the time. I copyrighted all that stuff, too. I copyrighted something like 270 photographs of Christian Death. Like, yeah, okay, they're copyrighted, fuckheads. Not just my property to begin with, but they're copyrighted. Yeah, I think it's just uh, one of those things where I'll equate photography with art for sure, and it's just something people don't maybe value as much, unfortunately. Yeah. That, you know, you know it's like that my a lot of my photos, like I still haven't been on a computer, and when my wife Karen got me an iPhone about nine years ago when I was doing a little t-shirt thing and one of the guys had set up a Facebook page and honest to God, I'm not exaggerating. Every time I logged on, I'd see some of my punk photos. I was flipping out. My stuff had gone around the world and I was clueless about it. I was just blown away. It's like, what, what, where'd they get that? What? You know, it's just weird. And there's a way to do flip shot that like, Oh, I wish I knew who it was. Man, I wish I knew it's a photograph 
that's slightly crooked of an actual pencil sign print of mine that was getting, it was all over the place and being used in memes and stuff. It's all crooked. And it, it, if you see them, you, you might see, you can faintly see the pencil signature. So somebody took a photograph of a print they bought from me and then posted up this shit image up on the internet and it was everywhere. Oh, I, I don't mind all the parodies and, and the, the jokes done off the stuff. It just iconizes my image that much more. Like the way to do flip shot, I've probably got like, you know, I don't know, 40, 50 different uses of it, you know, that are just like some of them are hilarious. And the damage parodies, there's a family guy, I think, and a Simpsons one and all kinds of stuff. I save those all the time. You know, it's funny for a while. What I was doing when I'd see somebody ripped off my photo to make some meme or something, I'd put my, you know, edwardcolver.com onto it and then send it back out. It's like, yeah, okay, you're ripping my photo off. I'm going to rip off your funny idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't fault any photographer for putting watermarks on their, their photos now because, like you say, you just see so much of yeah. it unshared and you know it, yeah. it can i'll be honest as a person who's sharing photos it can be sometimes hard to to source the photo photographer i i mean yeah. you're very well known so lot, your stuff is easy to source for the most part and it, you it's know. really cool i kind of have a posse that looks out for me it's really cool <laughs> you know it's awesome people go oh you know photo edward colber you know stuff like that or tag me it's like it's cool people help look out for that crap it's like god it's an endless it's really endless yeah well i mean the least you can do is edit it, it like you said it takes literally 10 seconds to edit your post and and add in the credit yeah so. yeah but that's still not adding credit when it's a unmarked photo yeah but you know and the people will put a hashtag with me when i ask them to give me credit and it's like if that's not photo credit put my name up there with the picture so people can see it yeah you know crazy making what about you know gallery shows? Are you are you know when when all this COVID stuff blows over? Are you, are you doing things like that? I'm I'm currently not pursuing any gallery shows. I have a friend and wants to do a Roz William exhibit in New York, mm-hmm. but uh, that might happen. But other than that, I don't have any plans on showing anything for, for a while. It's a cost a fortune to do a photo exhibit. Mm. You know, I spent eleven thousand dollars. You know, printing and framing in a 75 print exhibit. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and nothing sold. It was in a little tiny tattoo and jewelry shop, and nothing sold. And when I'm down there taking the exhibit down, these people were walking the dog by, and they came in, and they bought a dead Kennedy's print. Hmm. You know, it's like, you know, that was all. You know, I'm still sitting on all those photos. You know, it's just crazy. Can people buy them online from you somewhere? Yeah, yeah, I haven't tried it. I hate really trying to market anything. It's embarrassing as fuck to me, hmm. you know. I did a couple of prints, and my friend's going, you got to promote it on your page, you got it. And I was like, oh, Jesus, you know. And it's like, I don't know. I just don't like, like, hey, buy this. Yeah. If people want to look at your photos, where's the best place? Your website, your Instagram? Well, there's probably more stuff on my Instagram account than there is on my website right now. And I'm represented by the Morrison Hotel Gallery. And I, I think I've only got about 30 images or something up on there. Not very much stuff. You know, I sell print pretty regularly. But, you know, like I'm, I'm working on all these new scans and stuff. And it's like I hope to upload like 500 photographs to their website. And I'll probably be selling prints like crazy when there's, you know, 
people don't know a lot of these photos, you know, that I, I've shot. Wow. You know, a lot of people know my photos. They don't know I took them. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a big problem. You know, I throw stuff out there with the watermark. Some people complain about the watermark. And it's kind of like, hey, fuck it. You wouldn't see it without the watermark. There might be other ones out there. But it's like, and I figure enough of those start showing up as studios start, you know, Google searching images or whatever that they'll see them. You know whether they use it or not, whether they see them with my name on it, and it's like that's you know that's something. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully, you know, uh, this book, which sounds like it'll be, you know, pretty comprehensive, will. I want it to be. I want it to be like the Bible, a L.A. hardcore kind of. And I'm asking my old punk rock friends to write short stories or quotes or something for it too i'm not giving anybody any direction but a bunch of these guys have been hitting them up to write something for it wow that sounds amazing yeah i think it'll be good hopefully yeah i just hope that some editor doesn't start going no we can't include 20 pictures of the dead kennedys or, <laughs> or no we got to cut some of these quotes or something you know it's like i've got tons of good stuff of these people you know people seem like a couple you know and it's like well i got a bunch more you know like did you see that picture of him Makai i just posted uh, probably. What, uh, what, what is it? I just posted about a week ago. It's a vertical picture where he's in the crowd and I'm on the stage. Yeah, I did and see just it. surrounded by guys. Yeah. Yeah, like, that had never been published even, you know. That that could have been in my first book. But I, I sent it to a guy back east in consideration for use in his book, and he published it up online. Hmm. And, and a friend of mine says, hey, this guy posted your book. And I was like, what? And and by the time I got to him and told him, like, hey, that's not Watermark, take that down, uh, hard school, old, old school page, had already shared it, and there was 4,000 likes on it with no credit on it. Wow. It's like, God damn. Yeah, that's frustrating, <laughs> for sure. Oh, yeah, but I posted it up now. Yeah. You know, they can crop my Watermark out. A lot of times I throw it in a black area. They could take that out in about five seconds flat, just go, whoop, they're gone. You know, but it's on there to begin with, and it'll be out there with it on there. Yeah. Edward, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. I really appreciate it. Well, right back at you. I appreciate it very much. I, I appreciate it. All right. Very cool to have Edward on. It's just another piece of the SST puzzle and specific to this release. Very, very cool. You know, when I was thinking back, I mean, I know it was the early 90s when I started going to underground clubs and indie shows all ages shows when i was 13 14 or so and there was you know always a person there with a camera right like there was one or two people there with a camera and that it was like that same person that would always be at the show with the camera now this is in like you know small town canada and the early 90s but it's that same type of spirit i guess like wanting to document something that is like your secret and you knew was really cool and uh it's so important that we have that visual document of these shows that we you know we all wish we were at or we were at or we're listening to the music or reading about them and the photos make a huge huge difference so we're lucky that edward uh you know had a camera and started bringing it to shows and didn't stop yeah clearly some frustration and i don't blame him like one of the things he mentions like just go to discogs and put in black flag damaged because you know if you enter the 
the name of the release along with the band, a bunch of different versionals will just come up. They're, He's talking like about that gray one and oh, stuff. It, it, there's some brutal stuff on there. Yeah. Yeah. Just brutal. What they've what SST has done with that album cover over the years. It's awful. Like yeah. they totally butchered it. Uh you know, I think a common thing and I've seen this with you know, just from being a person that shares a lot of these images, is, you know, uh, I think I, just a lot of people just don't value photography as art. They just kind of take it for granted, mm-hmm. you know? And especially for someone that, like, you know, do you think when Edward took that photo that ended up on that first TSOL EP he thought he'd be talking about it 40 years later or that they would be making t-shirts with that image on it no way you know what i mean yeah oh yeah no i know if if you think like how little value recorded music has these days just think about the visual imagery too it is really deteriorated with the the advent of digital music if you if you ask me oh absolutely if you, if you ask me like who are our contemporary or even in the last 20 years iconic independent music photographers maybe we have to wait 20 years i don't know for them to be icons but i don't know there's no naomi there's no edward um and i think part of it is the devaluation of music and the lack of importance in the physical recorded artifact that's my thinking absolutely i was listening to a interview with a record producer just the other day and he was talking he was made an interesting point he was comparing film which is i mean sure they're streaming but you know a lot of people are buying these ultra 4k or whatever you know tvs and you know huge uh home theater you know 5.1 digital audio systems like film has gone that way yeah, ultra high def. Music has gone the other way. He was like, you know, as a producer, you know, people used to buy the the sleeve, and he would, people would see that he was credited on the LP. Now you don't see credits because you're streaming all of it. The quality's gone the other way. In his opinion, you know, vinyl was the was the pinnacle, and it's been going down ever since. You know, cassette, mm-hmm. CD, MP3. And, uh, you know, and then that doesn't even factor in the cover art and giving credit for who photographed it. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things and, and we've talked about it. And so as like, you know, every podcast, but it's the, it's the pros and cons of the digital evolution and making things more available and more affordable. It's fantastic that people can record something and get it out there that's amazing that's a huge thing and everyone can discover all sorts of new music so easily but it has you know the whole one dollar a song thing and not having to listen to the album and just buying the you know just buying the song you like by the band has totally lost that the whole package aesthetic and visual and audio and and tactile it all kind of went together not so much anymore i i still i mean like 
I'm not I'm not someone who's like, you know, vinyl is the best. It's the only way to go. I think CDs are great. I love listening to music on CDs. It's totally cool. Um, but I I like having the physical because I I like to, you know, look at it while I'm listening. And it's not the same to see that little image on your iPod. Yeah, it's true. Let's do these tracks, Ryan. History lesson, part two. Hey, so a quick Spaceman spiel on this one, and it's kind of cool. I think it is... I think it is alluding to the fact that SST inherited some Posh Boy copies, I think. So check out this spiel from the SST catalog by Michael Whitaker. It starts with the word Kriak, which I think is ought to be the sound of like a rusty door or the the lid of a trunk opening up like creak like that and then it says oh, are, you, are, you sure, are you sure it's not gin's feedback at the beginning of the song creak no, <laughs> <laughs> but then it says holy moly joe who i can only assume is joe carducci look in here god brush away some of this dust I don't think anyone has been in here for years. Hey, what's that? Boxes and boxes of Louis Louis singles? Wow. I didn't know any of these were still around. Come on. Let's bring them over to SST. The world has got to have these. SST 175 on 7-inch cassette and 3-inch CD. Hmm, cassette, hey? So says it in the catalog. It does not say that on Discogs, though. Interesting. But it makes it sound like they were like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and and found some uh, Louis Louis singles, I guess. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, they were advertising it in three different versions, so maybe not. Yeah. Okay. So, the track, Louis Louis. I I have a little Louis Louis spiel for you, Ryan. Do you know the lyrics to the song? Nobody does. (laughs) (laughs) Not even the band. Okay. Written in 1955 by Richard Berry for Latin and R&B group Rick Ralira and the Rhythm Rockers. Uh, He was inspired to write it as a Calypso-style song based on the group's version of El Loco Cha-Cha and was also influenced by Chuck Berry's Havana Moon. He also later stated he had Frank Sinatra's One for My Baby in mind when writing the lyrics. It's a first-person story of a Jamaican sailor returning to the island to see his lover. Richard Berry and the Pharaohs recorded and released it as the B-side to his cover of You Are My Sunshine in 1957. It became a minor regional hit and was re-released as an A-side. When the group toured the Pacific Northwest, Several local R&B bands began covering it. Most notably, Ryan, of course, The Kingsman. The Kingsman, yeah. Who had a national and international hit with it in 1963. It was rumored at the time that their version had intentionally slurred vocals to cover up profanity in the lyrics. Potentially. You know, about They what... definitely had some wicked distorted guitar. Yeah. For sure, back then. Inv- inv- invented by... Link, right? Link Ray or the Kinks. Yeah. Uh, teens at the time circulated pieces of paper which reportedly contained the real filthy lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> filthy lyrics. Yep. That, that is a great band name. Yeah. 
the F- and make it make it an instrumental band called Filthy Lyrics. Ooh, yeah, mine. That's mine. Okay. Uh, the FBI opened a 31-month investigation into the matter and included they were unable to interpret any of the wording. Sounds like a good use of time and resources. However, drummer Lynn Easton later admitted that he yelled fuck after fumbling a drum fill at 54 seconds on the recording, and you can totally hear it. April 11th, Ryan, Richard Berry's birthday is International Louie Louie Day. This song's been covered hundreds of times by Paul Revere and the Raiders, Otis Redding, the Beach Boys, the Kinks, the Trogs, Motorhead, Flame and Groovies, the Stooges with their epic profanity-laced version on Metallic KO. Iggy also did it on his studio album, American Caesar. Joan Jett covered it. There are entire albums with multiple volumes containing just versions of Louie Louie. <laughs> In 2002, Ace Records released Love the Louie, a comprehensive overview of the origins, impact, and legacy of the cultural phenomenon known as Louie Louie. This version contains additional lyrics by Des, printed on the cover of the sleeve also. Uh, Both of these songs are on the first four years, and Louie Louie is on Wasted Again as well. Ah, yeah. That's the other place where it is. Yeah. So this is actually the third time we've heard this version. As I mentioned, there's a demo version, as they call it, on Everything Went Black with different lyrics by Des. And it's also on the CD version of Who's Got the Ten and a Half Ah. with Henry doing it with different lyrics. I like this version. Des has got some serious soul and melody in his vocals versus the version on everything went black he's really crooning on this version for me yeah this is the definitive version because for me i i know it from the first four years love gin's solo uh love robo's opening drum beat with that perfect feedback from gin the you know dez's lyrics and like how he goes oh screw it louie right before the solo uh, Chuck's open string wallop at the end of the song. You can, <laughs> you can hear someone yell, keep it rolling. Yeah. yeah. Here's the all music review by Brian Carroll. Four out of five stars. Of the more than 1,500 commitments of Richard Berry's Louie Louie to Wax, Black Flag's volatile take on the song is incomparable. No strangers to controversy themselves the band pummel the song with their trademark pre-Henry Rollins-era guitar sludge while singer Des Kadena spits out his nihilistic rewording of the most misunderstood lyrics in rock history. <laughs> okay, and then we flip it over and we've got Damaged One. Starts out with some awesome extended feedback from Gin during that opening beat. I've always loved this song. I picked this as my somewhat controversial pick for the ballot result way back on episode 7. Damaged? Damaged. Of course, that is what I can say. That's the definitive version of Damaged 1, though. Yeah, for sure it is. Yeah, Yeah. Henry Henry owns that one. No disrespect to Des, but Henry owns it. Yeah, he does. Uh, I I was going to say I maybe would have picked a different one on Damaged back then if I would have been thinking ahead that we'd we'd get this one, but I still like the Louie Louie song too. 
this one for me is better though than the everything went black version which is yes played, it's played way too fast yeah i agree des des's lyrics are great uh it's rock damage stuck in my brain. It's their rules that I can't take. It's their rules, and to me, they're fake. But I, I, when I hear this, I'm missing Henry's. You know, oh yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Oh, the seething. Yes. So many gin chords in this song. Here's a little cool little thing on I found on this website, punknews.org, by John Gentile. Uh, I kind of liked something he said in his review. Gin reveled in cacophony and sour notes. Although the song is propelled by a simple blocky riff, Gin layered a near constant feedback over the top, making the entire song sound like a malfunction. Hmm. That's definitely true. Yeah. He, you know, he lifts his hand off the, his left hand off the strings, and every time he does, there's feedback. Here's something that's cool, Ryan. You know that No Means Nothing podcast that I've talked about a few times? The No Means No? Yep. One? So they have a new kind of segment on theirs called Andy Corrections. Oh. Yeah. Andy Kerr has started writing into the show with some insights into some of the tracks that they've previously discussed. Oh, cool. Yeah. So he's talking about the song Real Love. And, oh. And he's talking about the guitar riff. Is a crow on a telephone pole with something to say? Yeah. Uh, he's talking about how the guitar riff started just behind the beat. He says they... It's all, true. Yep. He says they do it on the song Small Parts Isolated and, and Destroyed too, and you yep. can really hear it on that song. Yeah, it's really defined there yep. for sure. But on Real Love, it's behind as well, and it's awesome. Yep. Uh, he says the whole band was really into Black Flag at that time, especially the lurch ah pretty cool hey that's cool yeah i've never ever would have thought that like those tracks were influenced by the flag but it totally makes sense i get it yeah so the cover art ryan is the same on both versions the posh boy and the SST version. Technically, I mean, uh, to look at it, um, the SS, some of the SST versions look a little bit darker. Uh, here's a cool thing I saw on Instagram a while back where Craig Abara talked about working on the single while he was at SST. He says, I put together the SST version of the Louie Louie single. We didn't have a copy of the front cover photo of Des Kadena and I guess SST didn't want to bother hitting up Ed Culver. So we use, used an existing, clean, Posh Boy copy instead. I had an FPO stat shot of the Posh Boy copy for the artboard and used an acetate overlay with the brand new typesetting of the short spiel, Louie Louie type, and the Black Flag logo and positioned it directly on top of the existing Posh Boy copy for our color separator to work out. That's why the type and logo aren't that sharp, and neither is the Des photo on the front. The back cover version is different from the Posh Boy version. SST had this Culver photo in its possession and decided to use it for the back cover. I wish we could have contacted Ed, but that wasn't my call. Do you know where the, uh, the Posh Boy, the image from the back of the Posh Boy single 
version what that image is from? I do, but lay it on me. It's from a 1969 film called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Starring Jane Fonda and Michael Sarazen. I've never seen it before. Yeah. Yeah, and as Ed mentions in the interview, uh, that the SST photo, uh, I believe he says, is a photo of his sister's boyfriend. At the end of the alley. Yeah, and it was used much later by Posh Boy for the cover of the Nuns single, In the Shadows. That came out in like 1990 or something like that. There you go, Ryan's holding it up right now. (laughs) It's a good single. Yeah, that's it. That's the Louie Louie single, man. I was totally digging it. I get ner- yeah? I get nervous every time we have a Black Flag episode. Why? I don't know. I want to I want to do it justice. Oh, we did it justice. Okay. Come on. I don't get nervous. I you know it's not my I'll be honest, like it's not my favorite Black Flag. It just is not. It's it's cool, but there are better Des tracks that I like. I like when I listen to this I don't have the single. I only have it on the first four years. And man, every song on the first four years is better than Louie Louie for me. Oh, yeah? Totally. Oh, come on. Fix Me? Wasted? What's come a, on. What's a better Des song? Than Louie Louie? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I like the stuff on Everything Went Black. Yeah. Those are Those are really good. Room 13, Depression. Yeah. Yeah, Those are good, man. Come on. Yeah. It's, I mean, look, it's Black Flag. I like it, but it's just the Louis Louis single. There's so much other Black Flag that I love way more, if, yeah. I'm, being honest, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, but I was still digging it. Oh, I'm not saying you can't dig it. All right. Ballot result then. Ballot result. So what are we going to do, Ryan? Are we going to put on another version of Damaged One? My vote is no. Louie Louie? I would go with Louie Louie. Look, it's not my favorite Black Flag, but it's still a good tune. And it's the best version. This is the definitive version of Louie Louie. All right, let's do it. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is for sure. This is it. This is awesome. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Edward Culver for being on the show. Super, super awesome having him. Yeah, and he mentioned in the interview he's got like a new book coming out, right? Oh, man. With like... Tons of unreleased... Quotes from artists. Yeah, yeah, and quotes and stuff. Thousands of unseen photos. And that's the stuff I want to see. I mean, you know, sure, I love his iconic photos that you've seen, you know, over and over. And I'd love to read stories about them and stuff like that. Yeah. From the artists or from Edward. But I'm looking to see some some shit I've never seen before, and it sounds like he's sitting on a pile of it. Yeah, let's get this uh, Edward book out and the Naomi book, and then we're then we've got something to flip through. Yeah, for sure, man. All right, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, it's another fave. It's SST 176, The Divine Horseman, Handful of Sand, and Brant. We've got a special guest. You bet we do. We've got Peter Andrews on the show. Can't wait. Yeah. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. 
If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.